You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 32. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the CSP podcast. So glad to have you back as always for you first time listeners. Thanks for joining me. On today's show, I am welcoming back Mr. Russell Cross of the Prentke Roma Company. As you may recall, Russell was a guest on my show about two years ago, along with Paul Andres. He's one of the realized language guys. On today's show, Russell talks to us about core vocabulary, but we go a bit beyond that today because you see, in addition to core vocabulary and and we usually think of core as being distinct from fringe vocabulary. So fringe vocabulary being mostly those nouns, those low frequency or specific, uh, very specific words. Um, but Russell goes beyond, and we, we talked to today about keyword vocabulary. And uh, I'm going to link to an interesting blog post that Russell uh, wrote on his Speech Dudes blog. That was a good post about uh, a year or so ago. We talk a little about that. And then later in the show, we even talk about phrasal verbs. So, you know, it's interesting. We think of core fringe, but there's just more to language than that. We can slice and dice language all sorts of ways. And um, phrasal verbs, I think, are is just another interesting concept. And uh, it's one of those uh, tools. And I think of it as a tool because if we know these most common phrasal verbs, we can think in terms of how we want to program or how we want to model language in very uh, specific ways for our students. But I won't say too much about that. Let's jump into the conversation where Russell reintroduces himself for those of you not familiar with who he is. Just for those listeners who may have not heard the earlier episode that had you and Mr. Paul Andres on, maybe you can just sort of reintroduce yourself and talk a little bit about the different, different roles you play in the public sphere. Sure. No problem. Well, uh, first thing is to let people know that I'm a speech-language therapist or speech-language pathologist, depending on which side of the pond you're living at this point. Uh-huh. And I've been working now in the field of AAC for uh, quite a long time, uh, 20 years working here in the U.S. with the Pranky Romic Company. And prior to that, in the U.K. for a good few years, and also worked with Pranky Romic out there, uh, a lot of what I've been doing um, over those 20 years is helping in the development and the support of the language programs that PRC have, which are primarily the Unity program that folks who are familiar with PRC products will be aware of. And I've been involved in the Unity team for, uh, actually, I started on the Unity team before I even moved to the U.S. So 20-something years um, I've been doing this. And more recently, I've been working with my colleague, Paul Andres, who is an um, occupational therapist. And we've been developing an online tool to help analyze data that's logged on uh, devices or software. And currently, we're able to take data from PLC products, Saltillo products, uh, and a couple of the apps that are available, Words for Life and the touch chat apps, and we can take that data and upload it to a website and perform all sorts of analyses on the vocabulary. And so that's really the the main thrust of what's been happening lately. My official mm-hmm. title is Director of Clinical Applications, 
But what that really means is I'm the in-house speech therapist here at PRC. Right. And of course, there's the other hat you wear is one half of the speech dudes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's myself and um, Chip Clark, who we sort of say we're like the opposite of Penn and Teller. He's the... (laughs) He's a very big guy. I'm a very small guy, but I'm the one who does all the talking and he's the one who's very quiet <laughs> and you never hear from him. So, yeah, it's the opposite Penn and Teller uh, without yeah. the same salaries, I think, is the, yeah. the other element to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to meet him someday. Uh, yeah, um, so would a lot of people. I think there's possibly <laughs> one or two photos on the Internet of us together. But other than that, no, right? he's, he's, he's very mysterious. <laughs> okay. So today, or, or together, you both write the Speech Dudes uh, blog. And um, I'd like to actually start there because we talked about what we wanted to talk about tonight and mainly this idea of what keywords are. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to begin. I thought to myself, this would be a good place to start a blog post that um, I don't know if you wrote this with Chip or if it was just you back in 2013. It was the title was Small Object of Desire, the Monte Verde. I think ho- hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, yeah. Monte Verde and Vincia stylus fountain pen and keyword mm-hmm. vocabulary. So you talked about a very, which by the way, is a very cool looking pen. Um, (laughs) I love pens and and this thing looks pretty sweet. (laughs) Um, So the whole idea is talking about in the field of AAC, there's this idea of core and fringe. Now, here's where things get interesting. And this is, I'm going to take a little detour for a second. Um, I wanted to quote from something from this blog post of yours. Um, I'm pulling up the paper right now. Let's see, where is it? Oh, yes, here it is. Okay. So this is from your post. In the field of augmentative and alternative communication where the dudes earn their daily crusts, it's common to talk about words as being either core or fringe. Actually, up until five years ago, it wasn't always that common, but the proliferation of apps for tablets has seen the world's, the words core and fringe become almost essential to the marketing blurb of any of these apps, whether or not it's true. Just tossing the words out doesn't make an app a good communication tool, nor does copying what other folks have done and dropping it into a few pages make it any better. No app creators need to learn what the words really mean before using them as sales jargon. Now, the reason I brought that up is uh, notwithstanding the need for uh, any would-be AAC app makers to really think through what it is they want to, what their objectives are, I, I, was, I was interested in this idea. I was thinking the other day, to what degree... Is it just in my imagination or has the term core vocabulary exploded over the last five years? And if so, if it, if that is in fact true, to what can we owe the rise in that term? And actually, I should have looked it up on the B, the BYU site uh, <laughs> as, a, as a term itself. So I, that's why I kind of wanted to start tonight. I was just curious what your thoughts were on that. Uh, we, we could do that afterwards. We, we should check the BYU site and see whether core vocabulary as a phrase has hit the, the high numbers. But I think you're right. Yeah. The notion of the actual notion of core vocabulary in relation to those words which are used most often across most situations by almost all different demographics has really been around for a long, long time. It's 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 actually inherent in in any list that you might want to look at. Um, and and just as a diversion, there, you know, one of the questions I, I often get is, can you provide me with some references for vocabulary lists that demonstrate core? And of course, I, I'll get as many as I can. And sometimes you'll get the follow up, which is, yes, but. Some of these are like 1980 and 1990. Do you have something more recent? 
And actually, in terms of core vocabulary, the other issue that's important is that if you look at some of the vocabularies from the 1960s and the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, it's the same core vocabulary. And the notion that something is new and therefore more accurate doesn't always work with the core vocabulary because core vocabulary is core and has been for many, many years, you know, for possibly many centuries. And so um, one of the things that, you know, to bear in mind with, with this notion of core is that the existence of this type of word is not new. I think what has become new is the use of it in a much wider sense within the field of AAC. And I think that within the app community, if you imagine that prior to the discovery that people had that you can write these apps and drop them onto tablets, that the folks who were then saying, hey, maybe I could write an app here and let me see what I could do, they're coming into a field whereby these sort of vocabularies now exists. So they're hearing about core vocabulary and recognizing that if they actually do look at a couple of articles in the AEC, that there's something important about them. And so the focus on core, I think, has certainly um, increased. But just the general idea of core amongst many groups of people has also increased and this shouldn't be confused with core curriculum which is a different type of, of vocabulary yes. but uh, but i think you're right i think there has been certainly a greater awareness of of core and then by extension the notion of fringe vocabulary that goes along with that right and i'm going to assume that the most of the audience understands what we're talking about when we say core and uh, fringe vocabulary so um yeah, I didn't want to spend too much time going down that road. But uh, yeah, I, I find it, you know, my, my guess has been, my first guess and impulse would be that with the rise of tablets, that's where a lot of this renewed or increased interest is in. Um, because as you mentioned in, in that blog post, um, it seems like every other, and there's so many AAC apps out there, but a lot of them, you know, will advertise core vocabulary. Um, it, it seems to be now a almost uh, a must-have feature in any new AAC app that has that, that has uh, hit the market or will hit the market. I'm sure. Yeah, so. and I think what's also interesting, and I think we're, uh, or I've been hearing this fairly recently, maybe over the past uh, past year, is that uh, from some areas we're actually starting to hear. A little bit of the opposite, which is to say that, you know, there's a bit of an over-focus on core vocabulary, that maybe core isn't all it cracked up to be. And, you know, we should be really looking at uh, going towards increasing people's vocabulary, their noun vocabulary, their verb vocabulary, the adjective vocabulary, and that there's an over-focus on, um, on core. Um, I, I think Part of that has come from the ABA community um, mm -hmm. and the, you know, the, the folks who are more interested in looking at you know, tangible objects, etc. So I've heard a little bit of a pushback on the notion of core. And I think part of that is maybe a misunderstanding that core vocabulary has become such a, a buzzword and something that we talk about that it is sometimes 
easy to think that the corists are telling you all we should do is core vocabulary. Actually, the reality is that all all I can ever say to people is, hey, of all the words that are out there in the English language, if I have to choose the ones that I can teach best and give you more bang for buck, it's going to be core because it's more predictable. That does not mean that you should not learn more fringe vocabulary. That doesn't mean I'm going to s- sprinkle what I do with fringe words. But there has been, I think, a little bit of that pushback against core. And I'm hoping that that's more just a, a misunderstanding of what what people are talking about when they say core is important. I don't think they're saying core is important at the exclusion of everything else. They're saying that core is important because it, it can also help facilitate the learning of fringe vocabulary. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, I would only add that I you know, since my school district has adopted core back in 2011, I, I, I've been taking a kind of a look back and just to see where, where we are at this point. And I'm trying to, you know, not a... Uh, not an in-depth uh, look in terms of data, but just kind of just a broad look and just what my sense is where we are. And there's there's really two tales here, or, or really, I guess, two ways of looking at it. One is that core vocabulary, especially certain words, uh, you know, c- can be very difficult to teach. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, how do you not teach it? You know, so the idea is that, you know, for instance, I have, I can think of uh, two students in particular who have used uh, core vocabulary systems and have just made, you know, just great progress. A lot of their, if you look at a lot of their, um, their LAM or their, their activity and you, lo- you just look at those samples, there are a lot of nouns, but uh. the vocabulary is there. They have that option. There's always the possibility and the hope that they'll add more core so that they can add more uh, structure, more grammar, more syntax. You know, you don't know if they're going to get there, but the thing is, yes, we're, we're emphasizing both fringe and core. Everything is there. So there's always the option. They can, there's only one way they can go. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to wait five years that maybe um, after working only on nouns or fringe, that something will click and now we got to start, you know, they have their, their stable core uh, boards, if you will, or mm-hmm. high tech. And we know that, you know, we can only build from there. So I, I don't, I don't see it as a, as an either or proposition either. No. And, and certainly, uh, as I say, if there's been any pushback um, over the past year, I, it is along those lines of saying that, you know, I, I think that's the overfocus. And certainly I know, and I'm guilty of this, you know, I, I talk about uh, the notion of descriptive teaching. And yes. that idea there of saying, instead of using a whole bunch of fringe words, uh, why not try using core in order to do that? So instead of saying things like gorge, G-O-R-G-E, uh, as in uh, to eat a lot, you would actually say uh, to eat a lot, where you use core vocabulary to describe something more fringy. And I'm as guilty as anybody of saying, here's a strategy that you can use. But that should not be taken as meaning, therefore, we don't need to learn the word gorge. In fact, I would probably say, hey, at least at the level of comprehension, we should be teaching these new words. And then if we want to add them to AAC systems as real words, that's fine. So um, 
if, if any folks are listening here and they've come across this pushback, I think on core, uh, you know, take that away with you to say and remind people that hey, it's not an either or. Just as you were saying there, Jeff, it's right. um, it's making best use of each type in order to expand the vocabulary that somebody has. Right. And, you know, uh, so let's move into this idea of what a keyword. Let's go back to that post. So when you were talking about the Monteverde uh, fountain pen, so this whole idea, so why were you talking about the pen other than that? It's a very nice pen, and I think you own it now, right? I do indeed. (laughs) And I'm sure you're very happy with it. It looks like a very lovely pen. It's it's the pen that Darth Vader would use if he had a pen and had to sign an attack on a planet, he would use that very pen, that pen yes. to sign the order. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so it looks like a classic fountain pen. Actually, it, does it have the a traditional cartridge then inside? Is that how it's? It uh, no, it actually has a refillable. So you just uh, twist the little bar inside, and it sucks up the the ink. So I just okay. have bottles of ink, and you don't have to mess around with cartridges. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Oh, it's nice. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So the reason you brought this up in the post is to talk about this idea of keywords. So we know about core, we know about fringe, and there's this idea of keywords so that within a given subject area, topic area, there's these words that occur, occur frequently around it. I hope I'm explaining that right. I'm Absolutely right. Yeah. So for instance, in the world, in the world of pens, you might be using the words cartridge or nibs, um, one for the other words that would go with it's a barrel, maybe. Yeah, or even even ink. Or even ink, oh, exactly. Even ink, yeah. yeah. So uh, so maybe you can kind of just run with that. You know, what led, what led you to be taking an interest in keyword vocabulary? And uh, we'll run with that. Yeah, I, I think what's, uh, what was interesting to me is that, first of all, the the traditional distinction of, of, of core fringe also always seemed to have an element of a good word versus bad word to it. Uh, maybe I'm sort of oversimplifying, but um, th- there was always that tinge that somehow core words were better than fringe words, and um, there was a almost a judgmental thing there. And I'm more interested in looking at the phenomena of the distribution of words as a statistical phenomenon, not as a uh, you know something to make judgments by. So. I usually always talk about core and fringe in relation to their statistical properties. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you can argue then quite happily that you know core vocabulary is uh, the type of words that occur above 95% of, you know, uh, you know, 5% of those words cover 95% of what you need. And there's a numerical value there, whereas a fringe word will be statistically unlikely to occur and would have very low frequencies. And there'd be, it's a scale. Yes, But what that doesn't necessarily always cover is that at any given time or for any situation, um, it's as if certain words will actually um, emerge from the fringe to become more core-like. Yet, we don't want to call them core words because that would be statistically not what we're saying. Um, but they seem to be more than fringe words within the framework of what we're discussing in a topic. And in the field of corpus linguistics, they call these keywords. And a keyword is any word that becomes statistically more prevalent than you would expect from a normal sample. So once again, I'm going back to the notion of a statistical definition here. I'm not doing a 
um, a, uh, a qualitative idea. So right. if you are in a discussion, as we were earlier, about fountain pens, then if we then took everything we said, we collected all the vocabulary sample of, of, of Jeff and Russell, and we went through an analysis, we would find that the words like ink and nib, when matched against uh, another standard population samples such as the uh, corpus of contemporary american or the british national corpus or the canadian strathy corpus if you match what we were saying then against that corpus certain words would rise statistically uh, away from the from the midline there and become more important and that's where the key word comes in and Within AAC, I think part of our challenge is how to handle best the keywords. It's not just how do we handle core versus fringe, but it's how do we handle those words that um, that have a certain salience at a certain time, a certain place, and then disappear. And I think it's for me, it's always helpful to think of vocabulary in those terms and use that concept of the keyword uh, instead of simply just core versus fringe because you know there is a reality there that that's what happens with words uh it's the same as uh you know come christmas time we all know that suddenly santa and uh, reindeer become incredibly important somehow we have to have lots of santas and reindeers as vocabulary there yet two months later in february um it's just not being used it's and gone. you know we're then looking yeah. towards easter bunny and so it's not that those words are not important but they have that keyword characteristic which is they seem to float to the top of the pool of fringe words and then sink down afterwards uh, so that's where i think there's there's some value in in making that distinction between a core a fringe and a keyword and the whole uh, article there on the Monte Verdi Invincia Stylus fountain pen was really a, a way of trying to just look at that in a very simple way. Um, I'm currently, uh, for, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm currently trying to put together uh, an article on the use of vocabulary in uh, the Peppa Pig show. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't know whether you're a big fan of Peppa Pig, but, but <laughs> I've had students watch the show before. Yeah, oh, Peppa, still trying to Peppa, figure it out. <laughs> it's Peppa Pig is awesome, and uh, it's 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 great. Uh, not only is it, it, it wonderful because um, all the characters have wonderful English accents, yes, much do. better than mine. <laughs> but what's interesting is if you if you do a transcript of those, and I've got a hold of some transcripts from them. I'm I'm trying to work through the numbers here, but one is that they do use an awful lot of core vocabulary. And what that means to me is that, you know, sometimes people are always looking for things to do that are fun. Uh, but don't have the appearance of work. And I'm quite happy to say to people, you know, if you want to sit and watch Peppa Pig for half an hour, <laughs> I would recommend it. Why? Because the vocabulary you're going to be exposed to there is is very corey. So you're going to hear a lot of the vocabulary that's going to be very, very useful. And then what I'm trying to tease out there are some of the, uh, the more – uh, not the fringy words, but the key words. And, of course, yeah. things like pepper and pig suddenly become very, uh, very, a very key word. Dinosaur is another word that comes up 
as a as a keyword within Peppa Pig. Right. Uh, so, uh, but that's another example. You know, we just looked there at the idea of the world of the fountain pen. When we look at the world of Peppa Pig, we start seeing how these these things uh, appear. And another thing that I I do every year, more as a bit of fun, but um, uh, is is to take the Presidential State of the Union address in January, and I run that through uh, some of my corpus software, mm-hmm. and I compare that against um, the uh, corpus of contemporary American, and again do the analysis to look at the keywords, and it is always interesting to see what the keywords are from a presidential speech, because you then get a flavour of what it is that the president is trying to highlight. And what are the, the important things, the salient things uh, that he's wanting to discuss versus the other stuff that doesn't get uh, talked about? And uh, now I've mentioned that, you're now going to say, do you have the latest? And uh, I will now promise to uh, go back and check. If I didn't put it on the speech do site, we'll we'll make sure this article goes up fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I do seem to remember you writing that in a in the blog posts it was either oh. in the, you know is either in the blog post or perhaps there was a it was a mention of twitter or something like that i do remember you talking about the state of the union at one point so. in which case it could well be in there i, I so, do yeah. forget i forget what i've written um it, yeah yeah occupational hazard i think um, <laughs> I, I i write an awful lot of stuff so um um, it goes back to this notion of like that's what we have the smartphones smartphones for having the uh, external hard drive to uh Take a oh, load and, off our computer brains. <laughs> and, and there we are. I did just check the State of the Union Address 2015. We are family. Um, and there. So, again, if people are interested in looking at the concept of, uh, you know, keyword as opposed to core versus fringe, you'll find if you look at the, uh, the keywords uh, within there. Um, what's also interesting is... Uh, Notice that within that sample, the words we and our, which we would traditionally just ascribe to being uh, core words, mm-hmm. actually show up as keywords because they are used statistically more frequently than you would expect from a normal sample. So when you look at keywords, um, a core, what we would call a standard core or a standard fringe word can become keywords um, you actually get the opposite effect you know in some samples you'll find that certain words are key because they do not occur as frequently as you would expect mm. so um, this is where you know the concept of the keyword again because it's a statistical content is interesting because knowing that for example the president talks about we and our more than you would expect in an average sample suggests that there was certainly an attempt there uh, to appeal to that notion of we and our. Um, and, you know, this is where this notion of the keyword is important within uh, corpus linguistics and, and the sort of things that you'll find in, uh, in corpus linguistics articles are analyses based on looking at the distri- distribution of words and how they're distributed typically against two or more different sample groups. So, uh, you know, we've talked about keywords when we talk about uh, pens and inks, keywords when we talk about Peppa Pig, and now keywords when we talk about the State of the Union Address. Any of these examples, I think, illustrates why I think that 
keyword is something that we should embrace and you know, certainly within AAC, something I think we should embrace. Yeah, now, just going back to when you run an analysis on an episode of Peppa Pig, for example, mm-hmm. so you, the, the whole notion of the keyword is um, when examining keywords, you're, you're examining it statistically against um, another body. Correct? Right. But in the yep. case of Peppa Pig, when Peppa rises to the top, again, you're taking Peppa Pig and you're you're not just analyzing in and of itself within a software program. You are analyzing it against, say, the British National Corpus, correct? Or and, and that would what with Peppa Pig, certainly the British National Corpus is, is what I'm looking at. And again, words like Peppa, for example, are going to be stunningly low, if not at all, because the uh, the version of the British National corpus i have predates uh you know predates pepper pig so actually i don't think the word pepper is in there right. however it's still valid because what you're doing is uh matching frequency figures uh almost as like between between two means uh and the statistics behind it is you know you look at the distribution within one sample and measure it against the distribution of the other so for example if in the British National Corpus uh, the word banana uh, appears five percent of the time, and in my statistical sample from Peppa Pig it appears six percent of the time, that's probably not significant. Sure. However, if ninety percent of the time we see the word banana in Peppa Pig, then that is. And so, you know, there's there's some stats going on behind there, something called log likelihood scale that, you know, if you want to look at the stats, uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time with them. So I don't think we need to go into them. Yeah, but I yeah. think, but, you know, when you have, uh, you know, distributions and you have words like pepper that come up so frequently within one, then even if it doesn't exist within the uh, comparison corpus, you're pretty, you know, you're still pretty safe in saying, yeah, still a keyword. It, it fits sure. my definitions. Well, you know, it, it made me think that um, when I, I'm looking at the end, is the, the clinical applications of this. I I think to myself now that I'm looking at uh, language sampling more often with a tool like Realize Language, I I can see, especially when looking at the word clouds, how uh, every three months or so, the larger words or even the medium-sized words can change. In other words, the frequency of a word, depending on perhaps an academic unit or uh, something interesting in their lives or something that they've uh, maybe a student has glommed onto and a strong interest, those probably could be defined as keywords uh, to them in their world. I, I think you're right. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we don't know yet from what we're doing or what we've been doing with the uh, the Realized Language tool is whether there are patterns like that that we should expect to see Um in what way do those things shift? How do they move? Uh, you, you sort of feel that uh, intuitively, and, and I bet if you did the numbers, you'd, you'd find this, you know, you sort of feel intuitively, again, Santa and reindeer are going to be moving up there during, uh, you know, well, for most kids, it's August onwards, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, you know, they fall away. And then the Easter bunny doesn't come in for, for, for quite a while and then doesn't really stay for a long time. But it would be interesting to, to see over time as, as as we see more people looking at their samples longer term, uh, what sort of patterns we do see in the dis- distribution of uh, of words and perhaps this notion of a rise and fall of keywords at different times, different groups. 
but you know we don't have enough folks doing that, yeah. that just yet. But but yeah, I, I, I'm hoping to see more of that as time goes on. Do you know? I just just as I had this thought in my head. Wouldn't it be interesting if PRC were able to somehow anonymously collect all of the data coming in from all AAC users and somehow come up with its own database, if you will, in terms of uh, core versus fringe, what types of phrasal verbs come up, you know, something along those lines? You are not the first to mention that, Jeff. Uh, you know, it, um, if, if we could set our system up uh, to do that, and you could do that anonymously. You know, there wouldn't need to be. Uh, I, I should, I should say at this moment. You know, I, for example, I tell people quite happily. You know, people call me and say, "Hey, I can't get into my data. Can you get in?" And I say, "No, because the system's set up so I can't." I mean, sure. um, so I can't go in, and we don't have the facility to go in and look at, uh, you know, data individually. But uh, if we could aggregate some of that data. Uh, there's the potential there to to start seeing, uh, as you say, you know how people in general uh, who are using AAC systems do handle their vocabulary. You know what sort of things do they do? What 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 seems to be easy? What seems to be difficult? But yes, you know the more people we have doing it, the more potential there is to use some big data, or I should say, bigger data than we've had before, to do that sort of uh, agglomerated analysis. Yes, I mean I, I've always. You know, I, I'm sure the the number of research questions you could ask. I mean, they're they're endless. I, I know the the question that's always been going through my mind has been, which core among AAC users generally, and maybe you can talk about different populations, but which core words have traditionally been more difficult to teach? You know, and uh, you know, what's what's uh, yeah. the distribution there look like? Um, and I, I, and I, you know, for me, it, it'd be interesting just to have a, just a wide variety of respondents, you know, across, because I, cause I look at myself, I mean, one person such as myself to look at my school, my population and, um, my students, I can already, you know, looking back reflexively, I think I've talked to you about this before, the fact that I have not been great about teaching certain core words that, you know, this year I've really gotten on myself on that, for instance, I don't think I've uh, emphasized it nearly enough. And I, I find it to be a very important word. Yeah. And uh, as you say, it's it's almost inherent in many of those core type words that they are, in a sense, difficult to teach. Uh, but partly I think it's because they are so useful and flexible you know they, they have so many applications that uh maybe that's not in a sense it shouldn't be so much so much as a surprise to us because uh you say a word like it or a word like that if we just self-analyze our own discussions we know that it's ah, there we go uh, you know yeah. we know that it's it's not uncommon for us to use both of those words and yet you know teaching them isn't uh, it isn't easy sometimes to do that and if we had access to larger uh, data collections and larger data sets maybe we could start finding out a little more um because you know, the reality of, of of our field is that in the grand scheme of things it, it is rather small and one of the problems i think we've always had 
and and I'm not a uh, you know a university researcher, but uh, but I I do understand the challenges that they have. Um, is that you know trying to get large numbers of people, trying to get funding for these things, are uh, you know it it's it's you know it's a challenge in of itself to do that. And AAC research, uh, I I'm not sure where it is on on the grand. A list of priorities for universities, but my suspicion is that there are many other departments and universities and many other research projects that sort of uh, get ahead of the AAC stuff. And it's not because people do not want to do AAC research. I think a lot of people really, really want to do a lot more in AAC research. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that for any uh, universities, uh, any situations, there's the challenge of getting funding. And it's it's just a reality. And, um, you know, whenever I talk to any of my colleagues who are uh, you know, within the academic uh, framework, they always remind me that uh, – Yes, they would love to do a lot more, but uh, getting together a, a grant in order to to do stuff um, is is always uh, uh, well challenging. I think yeah, is the sure, word. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's only so many research dollars going around, and um, right. so uh, Mr. Cross, the last thing I would love to cover before I let you go, it's so fascinating. Again, you, you can talk about core and fringe, and if you stop there, you're missing quite a bit. And uh-huh. uh, so for those listeners who I'm sure all listeners, most listeners probably don't know that I've been in this uh, AAC journal club, the, the first one, I guess it's the first round that began January of this year, 2016. Mm-hmm. You're a part of that. And you recently presented, it was your turn recently, and you talked about phrasal verbs. So uh-huh, yeah. here we have this idea of keywords. And now uh-huh. this idea of phrasal verb, and here you, you you did it again, where you you actually you pointed out something that is not uh, immediately obvious uh, when you now I wasn't unfortunately I was out of town, so I had to listen to the replay of that one. Right, right. But um, the idea of the phrasal verb is that there are it's sort of like it's it's taken this idea of core in a sense, like you have this disproportionate um, number of words that account for so many. Uh, so much of the language. But this idea of phrasal verbs, obviously, is that you have these combinations of words. You can take the word go, but obviously have different meanings depending on how you uh, how you pair it with another word. So, or, or a word like put. So in other words, you can put on your pants or you can put on a happy face. Um, mm-hmm. Is Would that be, am I, first of all, am I defining, am I doing a decent job of defining what a phrasal verb is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, basically, what you have is um, you you know you have like a, a a verb. Typically, it's just the one verb, and then you have uh, a particle. And uh, I say particle because you know you know you can call it a whether it's a preposition or an ad prep or whatever the label it is. But it's things like you know go on, pick up, come back, get down, carry over, uh, turn off, turn on. Uh, and and so you're right. Those phrasal verbs are uh, combinations of a, a verb plus a particle, and a particle is typically a sort of a preposition type verb. And surprisingly, we use an awful lot of them in English, and we don't always recognise that we're we're doing that. But the folks who tend to recognise that more are folks who are using or learning English as a second language. Uh, you know, I. 
I've talked so far about what I think is uh, the area of corpus linguistics, which I think is an area that we can learn a lot from in AAC. But the other area that I think we, we already draw, draw from uh, quite a lot is English as a second language or uh, English as a foreign language. And phrasal verbs are something that explicitly taught to learners of English because they are more frequent than we imagine. And they do have many, as she, absolutely as you said, they have many different meanings. So I I think you summed it up quite right there, Jeff. I think I think you got exactly what it was there. Yeah, and what what makes it so interesting is that here's yet another example of how you can use you know, this article, so for instance, the article you presented on was uh, by D. Gardner and Mark Davies, right? uh-huh. uh, pointing out frequent phrasal verbs. I'll link to this on the show page, a corpus-based analysis. And in this article, it's it's interesting. They actually have, so there's tables in here, and it'll tell you the top, so here, for instance, I'm looking at table four right now, the top 20 lexical verbs. So knowing this information might be very useful uh, for AAC users, uh, because you can take a statistically uh, higher-valued phrasal verb and teach that before, say, another one. So obviously, you might take at face value the word go, and maybe for a beginning user, go obviously is the action, but maybe you'll find that there are other pivots, if you will, that you can take go to, because there's, there's I don't know how many different uh, variations, how many... Uh, lexical verbs there are in that or phrasal verbs that you can uh use that for but you can you'll find that there's more frequently used ones than others and you can use that hopefully to your advantage to uh, teach those that are most valuable in the english language depending on whether you're talking about british uh english or american english or you know whatever uh, would you say that's a, a good value then i mean oh absolutely um you know what you've talked about there is uh, another example of where you can take high frequency words and leverage them in interesting words to extend your vocabulary you know the interesting thing about the 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 article that as you said you'll be linking to is um that uh, i think uh the notion is that 20 verbs plus eight particles, so that's, you know, 28 words in all, all, accounts or in combination for over half of the uh, phrasal verbs that uh, folks will use in English. And that, to me, that's the bit that made me stand back and say, can I hear that again? Because what you're saying there is if I learn these 28 words, and then learn how to combine them. I'm not saying, you know, you just learn the 28, you've done it. But once you've learned those 28 basic words, you're then set up to be able to potentially uh, handle over half of all the phrasal verbs that, that exist in the English language. And so in terms of bang for buck, you know, if you're going to learn a bunch of verbs and some prepositions, then these 28 are really useful. And what's also uh, great to know is that of those words, there is nothing bizarre. They are all really common. So uh, the the prepositions we have are uh, back, down, in, off, on, out, over, up. And those are like eight words we would probably teach to uh, any of our clients at any time. Mm-hmm. But then the verbs, as you say, like go, come, find, look, put, uh, 
mm-hmm. sit. I mean, these are not obscure, bizarre verbs. Uh, those are also very, very common words. Um, and I, I did check something here, and I will send you the reference to this one. There's a, uh, another great uh, article on something called the fave list and I, I i will again send it okay. but they have a they also include a list of phrasal verbs and in their top 10 if i look at the top 10 the top 10 number one is go on as in happen mm-hmm. but then number five is go back and number eight is go out so in the top 10 phrasal verbs that they look at the word go is in the top 10 and then on, back and out. So you think about it there, you know, you start seeing that there's a lot of power in learning a very small number of words that will then help you handle something like the phrasal verbs. And I, I don't think phrasal verbs are things we typically think about in terms of AAC. You know, I don't think I've ever sat there and said, you know, this week we're going to look at seven phrasal verbs and, <laughs> and, and we'll do that. But all I'm suggesting here is that if we keep our eye on what's out there in terms of information about things like the phrasal verbs, we're actually setting people up to do that. And should we then want to expand somebody's vocabulary in in interesting ways, then we could look at phrasal verbs and there exist already these lists of phrasal verbs already out there that we can uh, tap into and use in a very creative way to teach this, this type of structure. Yeah, and and I want to I want to tell listeners just in since I've heard this talk how I've started to think about you know I, and I want to just take this even outside of uh, pure device high tech device users. Um, I have students, for instance, you know we we use the Pixon project in our in our school, and uh, I have a student right now, for instance, he's um, kindergarten on the autism spectrum. He's learned a lot, quite a bit of core this year. But he's also picked up on his own. I mean, so I, I don't know how this happened exactly, but in the beginning of the year, I remember we were, I was playing a little game with him where I had a puppet, a little doggy, and <laughs> he wanted it to tickle him. So I was uh, modeling come. And of course, the Pixon symbol of come is you'll see the you know, action man with the dog, you know, <laughs> trying to kind of trying to cajole the dog to come on over. Uh-huh. And uh, it worked out beautiful. So somewhere along the line, somewhere along in this in this year, during that routine, he would still do this. But now he's picked up. He'll say, he'll, he'll do this to me all the time. Not just to me, but to others. He'll go, come on, come on, oh, come on. And he'll <laughs> he'll have different inflections for that same thing. But <laughs> I, there's a perfect example of a, of a phrasal verb. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm thinking to myself, do I need to take a closer look at this? And if he's learning other... So he's quote unquote, we'll call him verbal. And I'm thinking to myself, what if I, um, and this, this whole gets into a topic of echolalia, but, uh, knowing this, knowing these top 20 verbs, it would, it would be interesting to kind of chart out a path for him. If, if I, you know, not that it would be a, a smooth path because he's going to learn language on his own terms, but to at least, uh-huh. at least have this in mind as a kind of a loose roadmap. Right. And and what's interesting uh, with with these phrasal verbs as well is that you can um, you can also use them in uh, along with inflected forms. So 
uh, as I was listening to you there, I, and I'm jotting down things I hear, I heard you say the word, uh, the phrase picked up twice. So, you know, he picked up this on yeah. his own. Yeah. Now, the phrasal verb there is pick up, but it is absolutely right and appropriate that when you want to use this in the past, you don't say picked up, you say picked up. And yes. it's the verb that takes the, the inflection and up remains. Um, and this is, uh, you know, you do, that's an important part of development in terms of learning verbs is learning how to use those. Um, and the other thing that you can learn to do with phrasal verbs, which is standard for many, is that you can uh, you can break the uh, you can break the pair. They are separable. So uh, you can say pick up your coat and you can say pick your coat up. Mm -hmm. And both are possible uh, and both are allowable. There are some inseparable uh, verbs that exist, but many are separable. But part of learning language is, is also knowing that you can do that sort of thing. You know, pick your coat up. Uh, or And then you've got things like pick it up. You're talking about the word it later, uh, yes. earlier. Then, you know, learning how to, to have that sort of, you know, that, that, that as they say, the anaphoric reference, to be able to say it to refer to something you just talked about and then say pick it up. That's a language skill, um, and, and and it's it's sitting there whether we like it or not within these twenty eight words that I was mentioning. You know uh, that you can do that. Um, and, and another thing that is something to bear in mind uh, when you're looking at teaching these things using an AAC system is that uh, some simple systems do give you icons or little pictures for phrasal verbs and you'll find things like to pick up is a picture and it has a picture of somebody reaching over and grasping for something the problem with that is that it does not lend itself to actually learning that pick up is a phrasal verb that can be inflected mm -hmm. because you can't you know, the picture is the wrong way. Uh, you know, the picture is, is, is static. Uh, it also doesn't lend itself to learning that you can uh, insert an it or a noun. Mm -hmm. um, and it also doesn't lend itself to the the way in which many of these uh, phrasal verbs are uh, multi-meaning. So, you know, you can pick something up, um, but, um, you know, I can... Um, uh, if I'm learning a language, I can maybe pick up a new language, but that has nothing to do with the notion of me bending over and picking actually up picking a physical object. So at that point, you're saying, well, if I'm going to use it for that meaning, I need to have a different picture for pick up because now we have more than one picture for pick up. Right. So, I, I, you know, one of the things to, to think about, I think, uh, is that when you're looking at developing an AAC system, things like that matter. You know that it's it's still a good idea to teach the word pick and the word up as separate items because you have a greater flexibility. When you start trying to have uh, separate pictures for things like pick up or uh, bring back or, uh, you know, point out or come up or something i mean you are actually making your life i think I, I think you're making your life a little harder because you're then forcing yourself to have a picture that will represent only one thing 
Yes. Uh, and just not the other meanings and doesn't lend itself to teaching all the other aspects of phrasal verbs, such as the, uh, the insertion and the inflection things that can happen there. So, um, uh, you know, gosh, those, yeah. those are things to bear in mind as well. No, intuitively, I'm thinking that would be a nightmare for both the therapist and the student or the user. <laughs> right, right. And, and once again, these sort of things, the, uh, you know, the desire to, to create symbols to represent things like pick up and come back and look over and point out, you know, it's totally understandable. You know, people are not doing this because they want to do it on purpose to make life difficult. Uh, they're doing it because they feel that it's it's a, a good idea and being able to represent these things as pictures has value. So, uh, you know, it, it's not that people are doing this um on purpose in a sense, but I think what it what sometimes people fail to notice there is that the behavior of phrasal verbs uh, is does not lend itself to a single picture. Uh, phrasal verb behavior really demands a little more flexibility between the verb and the particle. You need to somehow be able to separate them at some stage, unless it's an inseparable things like oh I don't know. Um, fall out with so if you fall out with someone um uh, you know you can't insert anything there uh, although you could inflect you could have fell out so i mean even then yeah. I'm, right. it's not it may not it may be inseparable in the sense you won't insert anything between all the particles but you will you may inflect it so um yeah. it's it's worth thinking about you know it's something that again after you've been doing this for for a very long time these sort of things strike you as significant and important um and they're not always very obvious um particularly if you're sort of new to the field it's true and i and i i would say to anyone who uh, who's listening to this who's maybe new to corn fringe i think it just it, it really is food for thought you you think you've scratched the surface and you discover corn fringe but it goes beyond that and there's so many ways to slice and dice language um, and and you know that's one of the things that uh, you know one of the values I think that we've seen uh, over the past few years as core and fringe have become used more and more established. And, 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 and as you mentioned earlier, you know, it, it's rare now that you'll see any app that doesn't talk about a core vocabulary. I think what it's also done is given us the opportunity or certainly given me the opportunity to go back and look at what we mean by core and fringe and maybe look at some of the subtleties, I think, that, that sit in there. Uh, and that's why it you know, leads me towards that notion of wanting to make a distinction between core, fringe, and keywords. I, you know, to me, that's, an, uh, that's a discussion that I wasn't thinking about maybe 10 years ago. But now, to me, it's, it's a sort of interesting thing to be looked at. Okay, so before we go, the last question I have for you is now, I know that there's the, what do we call it? Would it be called the American National Corpus? What would the American counterpart be called? There's, there is the American National Corpus, yeah. There's a British National Corpus, the American National Corpus, and then you've got the Corpus of Contemporary American, which is the stuff that uh, the uh, um, you know the online Brigham Young University Corpora, which is also one of the most wonderful resources out there, and uh, we should probably try and make sure people get a link to that at some point. <laughs> right. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. Would that be uh, Would that be your first uh, uh, place to direct listeners if they wanted to? <laughs> Yes, you know, if if you're interested in exploring language, uh, I should say, you know, language and frequency, 
with words and you want to look at big scale uh, collections of words, then the uh, the Brigham Young University Corpus uh, Corpora from uh, Mark Davies, who was the author of one of the papers we just mentioned as well, mm-hmm. is is a is a wonderful. Uh, you can spend hours playing with that sort of stuff as well. Um, I, I also I, I should mention this as well. Which it's it's a great book um, on. Uh, it's called Researching Vocabulary, a vocabulary research manual by a guy called Norbert Schmidt, and I, I'll send you the details as well, Jeff. After great. this, but. Uh, this this cost me thirty bucks. Uh, you know, get it on Amazon. Uh, but if you're really serious about looking at vocabulary in more detail and looking at you know corpora, it's a great little resource. And finally, the the other thing I would recommend to people who are wanting to do a little more exploring in this area is a piece of software called Wordsmith. Uh, I think it costs about 80, 80 bucks or something, but Again, if if this is your bag and, and you're thrilled by this sort of thing, uh, it's well worth it. It's it's version seven at the mo- moment, Wordsmith seven. So once again, I'll make sure you get that, uh, Jeff, to, to okay. add. And I shall also probably mirror this stuff that we've talked about on on the Speech Dude site so that people can get it. But um, yeah, if people are interested, there are lots of avenues they can go down. And if people want to contact me. Directly to ask for other avenues, I'm more than happy to help. Okay, where's the best place for people to contact you? Uh, let's see. If you just do russell.cross at printrom.com. Mm-hmm. Russell.cross okay. at printrom.com. Uh, that'll get to me. Ooh, it'll get straight to my phone. okay whether i want it or not (laughs) (laughs) very good and uh so i want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight okay thanks a lot all right take care all right you too jeff bye now all right russell thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to me about core key vocabulary phrasal verbs, it's a lot to consider. I've had a lot over the last year to consider. It just it goes beyond just core vocabulary, folks. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at language and lots of ways to meet our students' needs. And uh, I just want to leave you guys. Uh, I mentioned in the beginning of the episode about that BYU uh, website. You should check it out. It's, it's fun to play around with uh, in terms of just looking at uh, the use of vocabulary in, in popular culture. And uh, so this question I had was, you know, I have had this idea that core vocabulary has taken off as a concept big time. And, um, you know, I didn't find much on the BYU site, but I did look on ASHA. And I'm staring at my screen right now, and you can look at this. It's interesting. So I'm looking at 1997, uh, one citation when I typed in core vocabulary. Now, of course, this this includes anything from convention presentations to journal articles to SIG newsletters, everything. Um, 1997, we have one citation. You go up to 2005, and in the early 2000s, we're looking at roughly uh, single digits. And then there's a little spike there around 2006 and seven with about 50. And then 2010, 68, 2011 was a big breakout year, 108 citations. And then we've been up in the high 70s, uh, with 2015 dropping down to 41. And of course, 2016, we're not done with this, with the year yet at 20. So definitely a spike. 
And uh, I, it, I don't think it, it's very interesting because when I came into AAC in, in a more uh, rigorous way, 2010, it was you know, a very fortuitous time for me because that's when uh, I, I think there was another push, at least, uh, for using core vocabulary to help uh, kids and uh, users of AAC, AAC systems. So pretty cool. But uh, thank you again for listening. Again, you can send any feedback to me at Jeff at Conversations at Speech.com. And uh, just to give you all a heads up, as I release this, I just signed up. I just registered for the ASHA convention in Philadelphia 2016. So if you're going to be there, drop me a line. Let me know. I'd love to meet up and chat with listeners. And uh, yeah, network. Get to know each other. So uh, let me know. I'll mention this again, of course, uh, in future episodes. But thank you again so much for listening, and I will see you next time.